Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid, such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. From the podcast team at Qalam. We wanted to wish you a very blessed Ramadan. This month, you can expect daily uploads that will include reflections, khatiras, and khutbas, all from our new campus, alhamdulillah. If you benefit from this content, please give generously at supportqalam.com. 100% of your donations goes towards the means of providing accessible Islamic knowledge to people around the world. Jazakumullah khairan for listening. Bismillahi walhamdulillahi wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah. Uh, welcome back everyone for another session here during the last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan where we are going through a series titled Forgiven where we discuss uh, and reflect upon different stories of forgiveness from the life of the Prophet the lives of the companions of the Prophet uh, and even some of the stories of the pious people of the past. Today, we're actually going to be talking about the story of forgiveness, the road to redemption for two different companions. And what's fascinating is that both of these companions, like the Quran talks about it, فَخَلَفَ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ خَلْفٌ Right, that there is the path to perdition, right? When somebody is basically going towards ruin. And both of these individuals, before Islam, the way things were going for them very much fits that description of they were on that path to perdition. They were on the road to ruin. But then there's a turning point. And they desperately are seeking out redemption. And they are trying to basically find and claw their way back. And they both have a very unique, powerful, effective story in that regard. And the reason why we're talking about two different people though, is that there's a beautiful kind of confluence of events that basically brings these two people together. That on that road to redemption, they actually, their paths collide. Literally. Literally. And they continue on 
the last part of that journey, they are able to actually make it together. So inshallah, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Um, so the two main individuals that we're going to talk about, but then also to not neglect the mention of a third very notable person, there are basically three people, but there's two that we are primarily going to talk about. There is Khalid ibn al-Walid, and Amr bin al-As, and there's a third individual, Uthman bin Talha, I'll bring him up basically when the time is appropriate. But Khalid bin Walid and Amr bin al-As, we're going to talk about these two people. Now what's fascinating to the Prophet even the most obvious of things, and Khalid was raised by this man. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you know necessarily that has to be a problem, but Khalid demonstrated a lot of that same behavior. Khalid bin Walid anhu is the man who led the cavalry during the Battle of Uhud that basically rode around the mountain and came and attacked the Muslims in the back and led to the, in, the injury of the Prophet ﷺ, the process of being injured. It led to the assassination, the killing of his uncle and his cousin, and more than 70 of his companions. Khalid was the architect of that. So think about how staunchly opposed he was to Islam, and the kind of wounds that he inflicted upon the Muslims. Number one. Number two, fast forward a few years later, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, they agreed that the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims would come to Mecca and do Umrah for three days. That was something that was agreed to. Okay? They would come and they would do Umrah for three days. And when the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims, according to their agreement, came to Mecca to do Umrah, Khalid was one of the people who basically protested and said, I will not remain in Mecca while the Prophet was here. So think about how staunchly opposed he was. And on the other side, we have Amr bin al-As, who is one of the most, you know, known as one of the most knowledgeable and wise and senior um, of the companions of the Prophet And especially, just heritage, the connection to Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu. Right? He's known as Fatih Misr. He brought Islam and the dominance of Islam to Egypt. Right? And think about the history of Islam that, in, that, that continues on from there. Egypt has been and is one of the major strongholds of Islamic knowledge and Islamic learning throughout over a millennia. And Islam was brought there by Amr bin al-As. So think about this man's legacy, his benefit. Okay? But again, that wasn't always who he was. Before Islam, Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu was the individual that when the oppressed, persecuted Muslims barely escaped, right, with their lives, they escaped Mecca, to flee and seek asylum and take refuge in Abyssinia, East Africa, Amr bin al-As went after them to try to bring them back to Mecca, to torture them. Think about how 
opposed this person was to Islam. That he was willing. These people have basically just left. They left. They fled. They've taken refuge elsewhere. To hate somebody so much that you would go after them, hunt them down, chase them down, and try to drag them back just so that you can torture them. That's who he was. Right? But then, obviously, once again, we're talking about him here as someone who is forgiven. So what exactly is the story? So we're going to take a look at that, and I'm going to uh, ask Ustav, inshallah, to also uh, comment on it as we go through it. So let's first start with the story of Amr bin al-As. Amr bin al-As, when basically the Treaty of Hudaybiyah happened, and then the Muslims came to do Umrah the following year, Amr bin al-As, he basically said that, I kind of read the writing on the wall. He, you know, he was a very strategic person. He was a very intelligent person. So he said, I read the writing on the wall and I said, look, he left Mecca and where are you going to go? He went to Abyssinia. But Amr bin al-As had a long-standing relationship with him. Because Amr bin al-As was like a diplomat. So he had a long-standing relationship. So he said, I'm just going to go there. He arrives there. Najashi welcomes him. Oh, old friend, how are you? It's good to see you, etc., etc. Um, and he says, you know, you're more than welcome to stay here. And they start to talk. And he kind of says, you know, what's your plan? Why are you here? How long are you visiting for? And he said, you know, honestly, I don't know. I don't think I'm ever going to go back. Why wouldn't you go back? You're like, you're like a statesman. You're a diplomat. You're a very elite, respected individual in your society. Why wouldn't you go back? And he said, you know, and he kind of speaks a little disparagingly. You know, Muhammad and all, you know, his riffraff and all those, you know, you know, uh, uh, lowly people and وَتَبَعَكَ like the Qur'an describes, you know, just being very critical and very disrespectful. Najashi is secretly Muslim. So when he hears Amr bin al-As starting to disparage the Prophet he can't hold himself. So what does he do? He punches him in the face. He literally punches him in the face. Amr bin al-As says it in the narration. He punches him in the face and Amr bin al-As is like, I just got punched in the face by a king. <laughs> you know what that means? What does that mean? I have to take it. I can't even punch him back. Because he's a king. Right? So Amr bin al-As is like, my nose is like bleeding. I bleed blood all over my clothes and I just have to kind of sit there and just hold my nose 
Huh? Yeah. And he said, not only did this king break my nose, but because he's a king, I'm afraid that if I say anything, if I even look at him wrong, he's going to have me killed. So then at that moment, I was just waiting. I was hoping that the earth would just open up and swallow me. Because it was like... Humiliating and embarrassing and scary all at the same time. It was like the worst experience of my life. But Najashi was actually a very graceful person. This was very out of character for him. And he immediately felt bad. So he says that, um, <laughs> he also says, Ayyuhal Malik, Ayyuhal Malik, Wallahi law dhanantu annaka takrahu hadha masa althukahu. <laughs> he says, oh my king, if I knew that this would displease you, I would have never said it. Like now I'm having to grovel. Like this is the worst situation possible. And so then later on, and Najashi feels, you know, a little bit bad about having done that. So he basically says that, you know, he when the other narrations, a little bit lengthier narrations, it actually mentions that um, and Najashi sends some of his own personal garments, like royal garments, like the king's robes. He sends it to him and kind of apologizes. He says, I'm sorry I broke your face. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and he says, you know, I'm sorry about that. And here's some clothes. Wash yourself up. Get yourself cleaned up. Change. You know, I'm sorry and whatnot. And then he says that, you know, I clean myself up and... Um, I'm kind of thinking to myself that this king sitting all the way here in Africa understands the truth. Why am I still resisting it? I've heard the Quran. I know it's not from a human being. I've heard the arguments of the Quran. I have no response and answer to them. I know deep down inside that this is the truth. Why am I still fighting and opposing it? It makes no sense. So, he says, I left, I departed, and I said, I'm going to go to the Prophet I'm going to swallow my pride, and I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to go to the Prophet And he said, I started traveling on my own. I left without even saying anything to Najashi. I didn't even tell him. Because I didn't want any kind, anything to just kind of you know, interfere with my intention. Like he would help me out and he would give me a ride. Or, no, I don't want anything. I wanted to do this on my own, for myself, etc. So I departed. I left. And he said I was on my way. And while I'm on my way, and then we'll pause right here, and we're going to jump over to Khalid. Khalid bin Walid, radiallahu anhu, he left Mecca and had come to Ta'if. And the Prophet ﷺ, Khalid bin Walid, he had a brother. His name was Walid bin Walid. We call him Walid Jr. But uh, his name was Walid bin Walid. <laughs> Is it correct? JR. JR. <laughs> Jr. Alright, so... Um, but anyways... So his brother was Muslim, Walid bin Walid was Muslim. And 
he was with the Prophet And the narration is so remarkable. The Prophet one day, he says to Walid, that, Aina Khalid? Where's Khalid? Meaning, obviously he's not here, but it's kind of like, dot, dot, dot. Like, why is Khalid not here? And Walid says, Ya'tillahu bihi. Like, made a dua, may God bring him here, Ya Rasulullah. Please, make dua, may Allah bring him here. The Prophet said, Ma mithluhu jahil al-Islam. Someone like him should get it by now. Someone like him should not be ignorant of Islam. He's a genius. Khalid is literally a genius. He should get it. If he would apply his talent and his ability and his strength and his fortitude and his seriousness, that military might that he has, if he would apply that on the side of the Muslims, if he would aid the Muslims, if he would be on the side of Islam, that would be better for him. And we would recognize his status, his stature, his talent, his ability, his accomplishments, his accolades. And we would promote him. He wouldn't come here and have to kind of start at the bottom of the ladder. He's Khalid. Right? He'd be, he'd be starting from day one. And so he says this, Walid, the brother, says, wow, that's amazing that the Prophet said that about him. So what Walid does is he writes a letter to Khalid and he sends it to Khalid. This is what the Prophet said about you, unprovoked. These are his thoughts, his sincere, genuine thoughts about you. And Khalid kind of reads that and recognizes it and he says, why am I resisting? Like I'm being shown love and I'm still like fighting. He says, I need to go. I need to go and I need to go meet with the Prophet So he says, I left and I departed. And I was on the way to meet the Prophet And he says, on the way to Medina, you know like sometimes we have like rest areas, right? Watering holes they used to call them. We call them buckies, right? <laughs> so you have places where travelers stop where they should stop. The Bedouins. The Bedouins. <laughs> yes. So, um, but, so there was like these spots where everyone would stop travelers on the road. And Khalid says, I arrived there and I figure I'm going to stay here for tonight. I'm going to stop and rest before I continue my journey. And while I'm there and I'm kind of settling in for the night, I look across the fire and Ahmad bin Al-As was there. And he was also camping out and getting ready to stay the night. And we made eye contact. And we grew up together in Mecca. And now we're just making eye contact and just like staring at each other and nobody's saying anything. And we all kind of just wait a little while. Hey, how's it going? It's going good, yeah, yeah. It's very, you know, kind of...
Awesome name Uthman bin Talha. He hears and he says, same here. <laughs> and he's from Mecca as well. And he was like a he was like a respected person of Mecca. His story real quickly. SubhanAllah, there's just so much here. His story real quickly. Um Salama. Umrah, you know that place, They were there, and Uthman bin Talha, who was not Muslim, he sees them, and he says, where are you going? We're going to Yathrib, Medina. And he says, you can't travel by yourself, a woman and a child, middle of the desert, you know, highway robbers and thieves and all. kinds of crazy stuff out there. You can't do that. He says, well, I have nobody. We have to. He said, don't worry, I'll take you. And then she says that the way that he interacted with us, he took us there, where he basically lengthened the rope from our camel, and he basically tied it to his camel, and he would ride ahead of us, like 20 feet ahead of us. So I felt comfortable, like he was far away, but I could see him. And whenever we would arrive at a place where we were staying that night, he would stop, get off his camel, then he would come sit our camel down, then he would walk away, far away, so then I could get off the camel and I would get my son, and then we would kind of go to a tree and we would settle in there, and he would then come back and take the animals and go far away and stay somewhere there with the camels and take care of them. And in the morning time, then he'd bring the camel back and he'd sit it down again, and he'd walk away, and then I could come and comfortably get on there and get set and get my son in my lap and everything. And then he would ask, is everything good? Yeah, everything's good. Then he would come and then again, he would tie the camel to his camel, like a 20 foot rope, and then he would ride. And she said, I ne I, he's, he was the most honorable man I had ever interacted with. And he was a Muslim. And then when they arrived, the Muslims were staying in Quba, not even Medina, the suburb of Medina called Quba. When they could see the homes of Quba, he came up there and he said, do you see those houses? That's Quba. You'll find your husband, you'll find the Muslims, you'll find everybody there, okay? And then he basically just kind of released the rope and said, just keep riding your camel into those houses, into that neighborhood. And she said, where are you going? And he's like, I'm done, I'm gonna head back. She said, get some rest, let us get you some food, let us, you know, just appreciate, you know, what you did. He's like, I don't need any of that. Well, don't you need some rest? I'll figure it out on my own. And he just unties the rope and he turns around and he just leaves. 
10 years later, or not even 10 years later, seven years later, he's becoming Muslim. So he's there at that fire camped out and he's watching Khalid and Amr go back and forth, hoping like, I hope these guys don't see me. And then he hears them talk about Medina and then he jumps forward and he says, I'm going to Medina too. And so now, all three of them are on their way to Medina. When they arrive in Medina, when the Muslims see Khalid, Amr, Uthman bin Talha, they're like, oh wow, this is a big deal. So what happens? They come and they tell the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, Khalid and Amr and Uthman bin Talha, they're here. The Prophet Sallallahu says, bring them here to the masjid. And then they come into the masjid of the Prophet The Prophet welcomes them in. They sit down with the Prophet And now they have the conversation with the Prophet So, of course, the first thing that's done is the Prophet asks them, why are you here? And they say, we're here to accept Islam. So, as is the procedure, the Prophet puts out his hand. And one by one they come, they place their hand in the hand of the Prophet And they accept Islam. They take the Shahada, they accept Islam. But now they have some interesting interactions. Amr bin al-As radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he will not make eye contact with the Prophet Ah, yeah. Amr bin al-As will not make eye contact with the Prophet Like the whole time he's accepting Islam, like Ashadu, Ashadu, Allah, Allah, Ilaha. He's like this. So at some point the Prophet says like, look up Habib, right here. Look at me. And he says, I can't. I can't. Why not? And he says, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed of everything I did. Everything I did to you, everything I did to the Muslims, everything I did against Islam, I'm just embarrassed of myself. And the Prophet wasallam at that time, he tells him that, إِنَّ الْإِسْلَامَ يَهْدِمُ مَا كَانَ قَبْلَهُ You have nothing to be embarrassed about. Because once you accept Islam, once you repent, once you come back to Allah, once you connect with Allah, it removes, it eradicates, it wipes out everything that happened before it. It wipes your slate clean. And then Khalid bin Walid, radiallahu anhu, he, when he comes close to the Prophet ﷺ, he says, Ya Rasulullah, I'm ready to accept Islam, but I'm gonna need one thing from you. So what's that? A condition. He said, I need for you to pray that Allah forgives me. Because I waged war against you. I fought you in the battlefield. I need you to pray for my forgiveness. And again, the Prophet ﷺ says, you don't need a special prayer for forgiveness because once you accept Islam, you repent, you reconnect with Allah, it will eradicate, it will remove, it will erase everything that happened before that. And he says, I know Messenger of Allah, but I still want your dua. 
So the Prophet wasallam, out of his graciousness, out of his generosity, the Prophet wasallam, actually makes dua for Khalid bin Walid anhu, and says, Oh Allah, forgive everything that Khalid has done and replace it with good for him. So this is basically the story of the repentance of Khalid bin Walid and Amr bin al-As radiallahu ta'ala anhu. A couple things, just looking through all these narrations, just finding different little nuggets. One of the things earlier, Sheikh, you mentioned that um, during the meeting with the Najashi, mm. he got uh, punched <laughs> in the face. There was something that, that was interesting that I, that I looked was, Amr asked Najashi for something that caused Najashi to punch him. Mm. He requested something. And that was that there was an emissary from the Prophet that was visiting an Najashi. And Amr, for some reason, in that moment, despite the fact that, remember, he's on the run, basically. Like, he understands, he kind of sees the Shaykh said, the writings of the wall, the Muslim community is going to be sweeping through Mecca now, and kind of like, you know, basically, not that he has any reason to think he's going to be targeted, but he knows that his team has lost now. Uh, for some reason, he asks an Najashi. Just, I guess, out of old, you know, old relationship status, can you, can you hand over that guy to me? Because this would be like a last, a last moment of honor that I could have. And if you let me take that man captive, right, then this would be sort of like one final hurrah for my people. And I, I thought that was interesting because, as Sheikh was mentioning, he had sort of seen that the, the you know, that the defeat was sort of imminent, but he still had this unfortunate idea and thought and it literally took an ajashi striking him like physically punching him in the face to knock some sense into him no pun intended and it was so interesting because you would think that in that moment especially when you're not in a situation when you have the upper hand that you wouldn't make such a request right like you just wouldn't do such a thing but subhanallah you know old habits die hard and when people are are on the path of change Right? We can't expect everything to click instantly for them. So Amr is like, that was maybe the first step he took towards change, was going to Najashi and having that conversation. And then he makes this like nonsensical, absurd request. Maybe I can hold this Muslim guy captive. Maybe I can execute him as like a final like statement to the Prophet Wasallam, Like, you know, this is who we are and this or whatever. You know, just like the, the, the honor was a big deal and maybe still is today amongst Arabs, but like it was a huge deal. And he still had that. But then almost instantly after and Najashi, you know, strikes him and talks to him and tells him, what are you doing? And it's, it's very, it's very uh, telling that we have to be for ourselves and for others. Understanding of the, you know, two steps forward, one step back. It's just the nature of how things work. It can be extremely frustrating when you're dealing with people or even when you're dealing with yourself to take steps backwards. You know, you, you do something right for a week and then the following week you mess up. Or a month or a year and then you relapse into that bad habit. If you were to judge yourself based off of that alone, you would never make any progress. But you see here that even though Khalid or Amr was in the moment where he was going to change himself completely, he still had that little residue of, of you know, jahiliya that was just still there that needed to be knocked off of him, physically, right? Um, the other thing that's very interesting is that now you transfer to the end of this conversation, and this same Amr, 
The Prophet ﷺ had a very amazing, I mean, many amazing traits. One of his traits was that when he was dealing with people that were converting from positions of something, he didn't try to break them by saying, like, you're no longer this. Okay? So what was Amr, what was Khalid? They were like statespeople, right? They were people who were leaders in war. They were leaders. They were respected. So when, when Amr converts to Islam, the Prophet ﷺ, he said to Amr, he said that I want to raise for you an army and I want the army you know, that you have to go and you're going to go out there and you are going to be able to win some battles and collect some spoils of war. The Prophet ﷺ, he offers this, but he says, like you're going to be able to take some righteous money, not like stealing from people. Like this is how you're going to basically hold your status of leadership. And why is the Prophet saying this? Well, he did the same thing with Abu Sufyan in Mecca, right? When, when Abu Sufyan is kind of slowly converting to Islam, he doesn't tell him like, hey, in order to break your nafs, like you're going to be a janitor from now on. I need you to go clean the haram, you know? He tells Abu Sufyan that go back and tell people whoever stays in your neighborhood, in your little house area, they're safe. Like you're still going to be their leader. I'm not going to come in here and just completely flip things upside down. Even though, understandably, the Prophet is the de facto leader. So what does Amr say? This is the same Amr that was like, can you give me that guy so I can hold him hostage? He says to the Prophet uh, that, Ya Rasulullah, ma aslamtu min ajil man. I didn't come here for the money. And he says, وَلَكِنِّي أَسْلَمْتُ رَغْبَةً فِي الْإِسْلَامِ وَأَنْ أَكُونَ مَعَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ I came here because I wanted to accept Islam and I wanted to be with you. It's, it's, it's something that Shaykh Manasseh taught me a long time ago. Was that if you give people a chance, they will always surprise you. If you have the ability to forgive and to build relationships and to move forward against what some might say is like their, their internal fears about like, oh, what if they go back? What if they do this? The Prophet is extending a handshake and Amr returns with a hug, right? He's literally saying, I'm gonna make you a leader and you're gonna be able to do good stuff. And the Prophet says, or and Amr says, Ya Rasulullah, that doesn't matter to me actually. I came here just to be with you, Ya Rasulullah. Re-establishing and reiterating that firm intention, and the Prophet ﷺ he then says, "Ya He said, "Money is good, but what an incredible blessing is good money for an even better man or for a good man." Like you just proved through your sincerity that it has nothing to do with the money. So when you do end up attaining some wealth, I have no concerns about you because you're a good guy. Right? So this is just another amazing transformative story from the Surah of the Prophet And there's a couple of ahadith about that where the Prophet had this kind of sensitivity that if somebody um, has a particular you know, accomplishment, talent, ability, something to contribute, to recognize them, right? Even for the benefit of the community to utilize them, right? خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ إِذَا فُقِهُ that the, the talented, the best, the exemplary amongst you before Islam can also be the best and the talented and the most exemplary amongst you in Islam as long as you come to the realization and the understanding of Islam. 
right? We read that narration, إِذَا جَاءَكُمْ كَرِيمُ قَوْمٍ فَأَكْرِمُهُ That if someone comes to you and they are naturally respected by their community, show them some respect, show them some love. Because by doing that, what you are doing is you're embracing that entire community. Right? And so, and, and think about it. They came to the Prophet ﷺ. He won. To talk in simple terms like we do. Right? How we think in simple terms. The Prophet ﷺ won. They lost. They are coming to him hand in hand. Or hat in hand. Right? They are coming to him asking for a second chance. The Prophet doesn't have to accommodate anything. He doesn't. Technically he doesn't. But he does. Right? Because that is the true sign of benevolence. Right? Rahmatul That's what made it so enticing. One other thing that I think we can close on especially is that a lot of times when we talk about making a transformation or a transition, there's a common trope that's sort of articulated of like leaving everyone behind. Mm. Like, oh, I'm going to become better. And like all my old friends, like, see you later. Right? Send me a postcard from Jannah. You know, like, <laughs> that, or I'll, rather, I'll send you a postcard from Jannah. Right? Yeah, there we go. That's right. It's late. Okay, so, no, no. And, and I say that jokingly because honestly, the reality of that sentiment is too real and too painful. Like, I remember hearing this in Sunday school. Leave your bad friends. And I always resented that idea. Because first of all, like, how do you even how do you even quantify that? How do you qualify that? Like, what is a bad friend, right? And you see that the Prophet ﷺ, the best of creation, was able to make friends with people who are nowhere near him. I mean, no one came near him, but there's some that are even less near him than others. You have a person that literally was the cause of the death of his loved ones, almost the cause of his death in Urhud. Obviously, we know he's protected, but circumstantially, his da the damaging of his face, of his body. Khalid's there, and the Prophet ﷺ is with him. And Amr is the cause of so much of his pain, and the Prophet ﷺ is with him. This idea that's perpetuated in the community about creating demographics of spiritual class, all right, religious class, it's not something that you find in the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Right? In fact, even when the companions came to complain about somebody of the Prophet that there's a man who at night he engages in bad behavior and he's dishonest and he steals and he drinks and all that, the Prophet just said one question, does he pray? And when they said yes, he said, just leave him because one of those things is going to stay. He didn't say, when he said just leave him, he didn't, say, he didn't mean like, like abandon him. He meant let him be. For the time being, right? Now, if you have a crime, you can bring it. But if you're saying this is just something you know about him, oh, we heard he does this, let him be. One of those things will stay, one will leave. This is the prophetic model of community. And you see here that when Amr was on his way to go meet the Prophet ﷺ, the thing that Allah sent to him to give him like that strength was Khadid. The same guy that they have a lot of bad memories together. Whereas some people would say, you know, cut out all your old companions. Here we have, time after time, from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, the power of when two people 
who used to do something that wasn't good when they joined together and decide they want to change together. Mm. It's so important as a community that we don't leave anybody behind. It's critical. The Prophet ﷺ was never a person to ever look back and tell one person, leave your friends. I don't want to see them. He was the most welcoming and the most warm person that you could ever imagine. And that wasn't the way that he taught us religion. So this story, for me, lots of lessons. But one of them is that everyone has flaws. If you can be somebody that can bring some goodness from something to your companions, to your friends, or you can be on the receiving end and you see goodness in your friends, the two candles that come together seem to provide a much greater light than just two times whatever candles, right? So if you bring them together, you might be able to have some greater illumination. Don't be afraid, don't be shy to be the person that encourages your friends or your companions to do the right thing. And don't be arrogant when your friends encourage you to do the right thing. When your companions remind you to come to the masjid with them. Don't be the one that deflates the good that has now entered into your uh, space. So we ask Allah Ta'ala to give us good companionship and to make us not people who reject or repel, but to invite. And we ask Allah Ta'ala to make us all together on the path to Him, on the path to His Messenger, and we ask Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to leave this gathering tonight completely forgiven of all of our sins. As the Prophet Sallallahu teaches us that when we gather in the house of Allah remembering Him, that the angels gather above us in droves and circles and circles in awe of the fact that people are here on a Sunday night, on a work night. The angels are shocked. And the reward for the people who are gathered here, if they want to be here or not, if they came for the Kalam charcuterie board outside every night or not, is that there's not a real one. I heard someone say, What? No, you're not missing out. It's just it's just people's leftovers. <laughs> but if you came for this or if you came for the warm watermelon that's on the table, <laughs> then the hadith says that no matter what you came for, sleeping or awake, that Allah will forgive you. So we ask Allah to forgive us. Amen. Amen.